This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today for Practical for Your Practice. I'm Dr. Kevin Holloway and uh, joined here as always with uh, Dr. Jenna Ermold. Jenna, do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Excited to be here as usual. How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. All right. Good. We have a very special guest with us today. We're excited to have Dr. Lisa Ann Kukurulo. She is uh, joining us from National Center for PTSD. Lisa, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. We're excited to have you. We've we've worked a little bit together before. For for those of you that are listening, you may not know this, but um, we've we've done some collaborative work with the National Center for PTSD, and have gotten the chance, uh, been honored to, uh, working in cooperation with with Lisa before. In uh, Lisa, you want to tell us a little bit about the work that we've done together? At least, just kind of give a background. Sure. Uh, now I think we've worked together for almost three years. Yeah. Our first training together was even before COVID times. Right. Uh, Kevin and I have done some training. So um, NCPTSD has collaborated with your group to provide trainings for community providers in PTSD assessment and PTSD care. Um, and so you and I first did our training in Oklahoma City, I That's think, right. yep. in uh, 2020 or 2019. And since then, we've done probably about three or four trainings together between doing PE trainings or PTSD assessment trainings together. Has been That's fun. Right. And the last several of those, uh, of course, since COVID started, we did them online. We've had uh, Jenna with us as well. She's teaching the first portion of the first day of teaching that military culture and why that is relevant and understanding the the population they're working with. And I so, and I got to go to Vermont and Montana as part that's of right. this effort. Oh, wow. So you guys got Oklahoma City, but uh, Mike and I got to go to headquarters. Uh, so we go Vermont. way back. Yeah. So, um, Lisa, what do you do? <laughs> so, uh, at NCPTSD, I actually wear uh, a few hats, do a few different types of jobs. Um, one is our consultation program, which through our uh, NCPTSD consultation program is how I work with you all. Mm -hmm. But uh, for the most part on the day-to-day, -day, the consultation program is just being really great colleagues to providers who treat veterans with PTSD. And so they ask for some consultation on their case, whether that's about diagnostics or maybe they're getting stuck somewhere in their treatment or even just want some information about PTSD. And I chat with colleagues and talk about PTSD, talk about their cases and help connect them to good information. The other hat I wear is our PTSD mentor program, which is really something that is focused on VA care. And what we do there is help PTSD specialists and PTSD teams support them in the administrative work of running a PTSD team at the VA and sort of 
if the consultation is the clinical side, the mentor program is sort of the administrative side of doing PTSD work. And then a small part of my time is teaching and consulting in a formal training program for prolonged exposure. And so that's sort of what my, you know, 40 hours a week typically consists of at uh, NCPTSD. I was starting to count. That sounds like an awful lot more than 40 hours a week. (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, luckily, luckily I get to really love my job and work with providers. So when a couple extra hours sneak in, I, I let the government have it for free. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And so, you I mean, like you've really seen, um, you've, you've been in the trenches with the, the really the people that we, we hope are listening to this podcast too, the folks that are wanting to implement evidence-based psychotherapies, people who are wanting to, to help their clients even better and, and perhaps are running up against issues or problems or barriers or, um, or maybe, you know, un- unexpected challenges. And, and I imagine that's, that it sounds to me like that's what you do. Mm-hmm. all day long is work with folks that are doing exactly that. Yeah, that is, that is the type of work that I get to do every day. That's the sort of fun part is that I get to help people with the clinical and administrative barriers that might influence their ability to do their best work with their patients. Um, and I came to this job because that was some of the problems that I was experiencing when I was a VA clinician. I wanted to be able to provide evidence-based treatments and best practices. And sometimes um, that was difficult because there's always some barriers to, to doing that work. So right. I really love doing this job because it's like helping my um, younger professional self. That's great. It's like a redo. Um, so, you know, thinking about that uh, between the experiences you had personally um, and and in the role you're in now problem solving for others, what tend to be sort of the top barriers that you've encountered or that you've heard other clinicians and clinics encounter as they're trying to implement EBPs? I think uh, some of the barriers have really come in in two different directions. One is the the clinical barriers, which is, you know, uh, a willingness for our patients to do evidence-based practice. And sometimes that comes with the skill level of learning how to talk about evidence-based practice and learning really how to discuss what these treatments look like when we're engaging in them, how this might look different than what therapy looks like on Seinfeld or take your, I mean, I probably just gauge myself by using Seinfeld, but you know, take your favorite, pick your favorite show on TV and, and she didn't how doing something like CPT. <laughs> yes. That probably would have been a better reference though. Um, you know what that, how that looks different and, and really sharing with people how PTSD treatment, we're very lucky as PTSD clinicians and people work in the PTSD space that we have so many good treatments that have great outcomes. Um, but, you know, our patients don't know that because they don't know that. For our listeners benefit, you should know we, we're, we're solving problems on the fly, which is exactly the theme of this episode. And we, uh, we had Lisa call in on her phone too, just because we were having some connection issues. So she's going to sound a little different, but it's the same awesome Lisa, right? So Lisa, hi again. Hi. Hi again. Hi. <laughs> so you were telling us about how um, helping, uh, you know, hel- helping clinicians to talk about evidence-based psychotherapies, helping them to present them to clients that that was, that's one thing that you've been um, 
you really engaged in is, is because clients or patients don't know, they don't have an advanced degree. How do you help communicate that to them? What the, what the therapies are and what the benefits are and what they can expect. Yeah. I, I love having conversations about shared decision-making about how do we talk about treatments like PE or CPT um, but also, how do we explain what those treatments are like for everyone in the practical sense? Things like how much time you're going to spend out of session and what we expect to get from that treatment and understanding sort of the evidence of why we do these things. What are the mechanisms of change? You know, in our own psychology speak, we would use those terms. But for our patients, you know, what are the what are the have tos in the in the treatment if we want to get better mm-hmm. and what are the things that are going to be important to, to fully engage in. So I love having those conversations with providers and uh, it really does shed a light on how we can talk about how we can talk about different types of therapies, even therapies we don't necessarily do in our own clinical practice, but it's important for our patients to know about. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that's a point I think that that we don't all appreciate as much, um, or at least all the time, is that uh, you know the way that we talk about therapies or the way that we present them to our clients can have a big impact about you know whether they even want to start with them, but can stay engaged with them when it can be challenging or, or what they can expect. Why is this happening? And I love that last point is that you know this really can apply to treatments that we don't necessarily offer as a clinician, but maybe you know our clients are still accessing, utilizing, maybe referring them to, um, just to help them have a little bit better of a, you know, a a consumer understanding of what it is that they're getting or hope to get. Yeah. I I think other types of of medicine do great jobs at shared decision-making, right? They'll say, you know, uh, surgery might not be an answer when you're talking to a surgeon, but I can refer you to someone who does something else that may be an applicable treatment for what we have on our hands, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have to be experts in every type of psychotherapy for PTSD or even every disorder, but it is great to be able to have those conversations with our patients so that they can make an informed choice about the treatment that they want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great point and such a wonderful analogy because I think sometimes as behavioral health providers, we feel like we're held to this other level or that we do need to be sort of all knowing about all things. And, and our, you know, our medical brethren, our, our, our colleagues um, really specialize and, and that's expected. And, you know, you would seek out somebody with a certain specialization. um, And it doesn't mean that you're not a really wonderful provider who can, you know, take care of lots of different things for a client. Um, But that comfort level with, like you just said, being able to adequately and and um, sort of convincingly, I think sometimes we we also don't want to feel like salesmen, but but we're really it's that informed consent. We're informing our consumer of what their options are in a meaningful way that I think really helps them take that next step of engaging in the type of treatment that's going to work for them. Um, and I don't think that's often really talked about as a barrier that you kind of have. It's the skill set of you know being able to do the EBP, but there's this other skill set of really being able to work with that client. Um, to talk about in a meaningful way, what would be the best approach for them with so many options happily for, for good treatment. So I love that. Mm-hmm. 
What about some other barriers? So that's kind of one of those you, you were talking about them um, coming from two different areas. Um, and, and so so one is how do we kind of build our comfort in, in talking about what the different options are for evidence-based practice? What are some other barriers, either from the provider side or the client side or the practice side, um, the clinic side that you've, you've encountered? I think sometimes administratively, too, there's this balance of what it means to do a course of treatment that some providers, systems, if you're working in a particular type of system, I work in one at the VA, but there's lots of other healthcare systems, and as well as our clients' understanding of the treatments that we know work for PTSD are at the very least done weekly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of being able to have 60 minute or 90 minute sessions weekly and to be able to have at home work for the majority of these treatments, you know, these are things that are is not always consistent with how some systems or even some private practices work. And so there's that piece, which is, is there um, mechanisms in place for us to be able to provide a course of treatment in a way that's that has some fidelity to those treatment um, manuals and to that type of treatment work. And then there's always the the hard clinical work of then doing it. Um, You all know, because you've treated PTSD is that it is, you know, even though our manuals are amazing and they have beautiful scripts about what to say and why, our patients are never that straightforward. There's co-occurring conditions. Mm -hmm. Life is hectic. And in the past three years, we've done it while a pandemic has been sort of like raging in the background. Life is chaotic for people with PTSD and without it. And so how do you do these treatments even in the midst of all of this happening? So that's a really good point. One of, uh, we've talked about this on, on the podcast before, one of the challenges for many of us was that, you know, just as the, the the pandemic was really ramping up as we, you know, starting to see a lot of impact on our day-to-day lives, that providers, all of us suddenly were kind of thrown into this unplanned experiment too, of you know, switching on a dime to doing telehealth. And and can these can these evidence-based psychotherapies be done with fidelity on you know via telehealth? And I think the evidence seems to strongly say, yes, absolutely. And we've talked about ways around that, but you know, you're you're absolutely right that that's it's it's in the midst of all the other things people are dealing with, all the other challenges in their day to day life that are, that are going on, both on the client side and the provider side. Absolutely, I think you know here where I sit in in New York City, school is about to start in the next like week and a half, and to think about you know when I was doing clinical work every day. Some of the things when school was starting to know that like there, it was going to be really hard for my patients to consistently do their at-home work mm-hmm. while school is starting. You have to go to Staples at least five times that week <laughs> to make sure everyone has all their supplies, right? At you have least. Three, yes, exactly. You have three parent-teacher conferences. You have to get there to like, you know hand over all the like glue and paper towels that you bought for the classroom. Yeah. I mean, these are the (laughs) things that come up in everyone's everyday life, but they're also the things that influence people's ability to do their at homework and treatment. How do you be flexible with fidelity? Right. And those, that is a highly skilled 
really hard note to hit. So I think those are some clinical things that can be really, really difficult for our providers. And and that's stuff that I think we talk about almost every day in our consultation program at NCPTSD because that's the stuff that people call about, right? Never that straightforward patient because we have good manuals and we've been well-trained, but it's the what now? This is happening. What do I do now? Absolutely. And that's where good consultation comes in. And I think it comes from a good place, especially for, um, you know, and Kevin and I both teach PE as well, you know, for our newer PE providers, it's they're earnest, right? Like they want to do it, you know, per the protocol and and be true to the protocol or hopefully that's the case. And and I think we see that in consultation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always say like good clinician first, good PE clinician second, like your clinical decision-making and your, you know, all those skills that you have about alliance and rapport and, and kind of like basic humanness <laughs> doesn't go out the window because you're doing an EBP. Um, but it's understandable that, that, and that, you know, kind of you relax over time and, and you can, you can balance those two things, that flexibility and fidelity. Um, but when I, I think initially when people are first trained, they're really wanting to, to, to make sure there's, there's fidelity to what they're doing. And so it is great. Um, we certainly see that in consultation as well. And it's, it's wonderful that that's coming up in your consultation too. And at some point, um, we do want to make sure that what we'll do is link the, uh, information about your consultation service because I know it's it's really kind of open to anybody treating correct it's it's a, and maybe you can we'll cover that now who who is who can access your consultation service so any provider who is treating veterans with PTSD is able to call our service and then in in times when there's sort of a some sort of national emergency or a highly big event, we open the doors a bit wider. So during the height of COVID, we still take um, calls related to COVID-related treatment. Um, also things like when there are um, huge uh, national fires or um, mass Mesh. violence events, we take yeah, mm-hmm, we take consultation related to to those events also. That's great. We'll we'll make sure we add that number in our show notes so folks can have access to that. Um, but I think consultation okay, is a is um, it can you know it's it's time out of a clinician's day, but it's so worth it to be able to get that support as one is really figuring out this flexible flexible fidelity approach. So that's great. I imagine, Lisa, that you've you've encountered some very interesting situations before, like probably have some fantastic stories to tell. Like what's, what's one of the most, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to try to set you up with a couple of different prompts and you can pick whichever one you want to respond to, but uh, what sure. is the most challenging situation you've encountered? That That's one possibility. What is the most common challenge that you've encountered? And then perhaps one, you know, also you, know, you could pick this one, like what, what challenges have have really led that that as you've worked with a cl- uh, clinician trying to implement EVPs have led to some of the the most I, I don't know uplifting exciting you know results big turnaround perhaps creativity yeah mm. any thoughts on that I mean people love stories yeah I love stories yeah so I will say I I feel so lucky in the the career I've gotten to have in that. Um, you know, I've been uh, a sort of frontline clinician at VA, but also a supervisor of 
students, so psychology and psychiatry trainees, and then now through our consultation program, the ability to to work with other providers. So I sort of have have been able to have a great span of people I got to work with and also see what it's like to do clinical work through many different lenses. And I will say some of the most rewarding work is working with people who are just learning evidence-based treatment. So I'll go with PE because it's probably what I've supervised the most. Mm -hmm. But um, I love the idea of people get very nervous and concerned about making in vivo hierarchies and sending people out in the world to do the things that they have been avoiding. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think part of it comes from people wanting to do what is best for their patient, right? And knowing that their patient experiences distress when they go to places. So, yeah. you know, whether that is a large store, whether that is a park or even sometimes some exposures that people do in their own home. Uh-huh. Um, but I love the idea of when the when someone reports back after they've done their at-home work, after they've done the exposure, and after the provider and the patient have sort of aligned on the same team about the type of work they're going to do. And the provider has done such a great job at sort of like being an amazing cheerleader. And supporting them to be able to feel comfortable, willing, and eager to do the homework in the service of moving towards health. And then when they get to that place, right, of like, I did it and I went. And one of the best experiences I've had is one of my trainees back when I was working in New Orleans had been doing PE with this amazing female patient who had been exceptionally avoidant after uh, sexual assault trauma and it very rarely left her, her home and went at the end of treatment on a short vacation mm. and brought my student back a keychain from the location that she went to just to like say a small thank you of like this is a huge accomplishment for me. And I, I got here because of the work we did together. That is so and cool. it was just so, so touching. And I, I still keep in touch with that student. And I know he still has the keychain because it's like such a great reminder for him too, of this idea of like, this is all done in the service to, to reach a big goal. And here's like a very physical reminder that people are reaching these big goals all the time really getting their lives back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yeah. amazing. That's really cool. I, you know, and it's, it's interesting too, cause I know, you know, as we, have we, let me say that again. I know as we've taught together um, PE as Jenna and I have talked, taught PE together. And I mean, just all of us have taught this, this is stuff we cover. We, we talk about that in workshops. We talk about practical ways to help people do things, but we can't cover all the possibilities. Right. And that's mm-hmm. what consultation is so useful for is like bringing in a very specific situation with the very specific uh, uh, barriers, the very specific things that are getting in the way and getting to problem solve together, coming up with things that are that are consistent with the underlying theory of whatever EBP it is that you're talking about that helps that client make that progress move along a little bit more um, towards their goals. Um, that's I know we, we, we've also talked about consultation on the podcast before, but man, what a great opportunity to get some um, expert input. You know, when you're, when you're 
experiencing some of these really specific, very individualized uh, challenges and the, to come out the other side with some ideas and plans to, to help your client move forward. Oh, for sure. And I, I love taking the calls and, and meeting with new providers because it also just expands your sort of clinical family, right? Who are the sure. people who Absolutely. you're going to have conversations with now feel comfortable coming to you in the future with whether it's a clinical issue, administrative issue, you know, even just some support or chat. So many providers, whether they're in VA or out, you know, work in a silo sometimes, especially sure. if you're working at a more community or rural-based clinic, to be able to know you have a colleague who's going to sort of answer that email or make time in their schedule to have a chat with you, that's a big deal. You definitely never worry alone. I mean, it's, it, it's, we, and Kevin and I feel really lucky that, um, I mean, sometimes we joke, like we learn as much as, as our consult, as our consultees do, you know, kind of thinking through and meddling through and problem solving together and the creativity that comes from some of the other, um, folks we consult with on the call is, uh, is really helps all of us grow. It really, um, every new encounter we have is an opportunity for growth. And I think, um, you know, a myth or, that I, I definitely hope we can bust today too is the whole point of consultation is is it's totally fine to be imperfect and it's expected. None of us, none of us can engage in any of these psychotherapies uh, and have it run smoothly each and every time. Right. Um, and it's expected that there's going to be bumps, um, and it's so much more fun to navigate that with with colleagues um, and and people who maybe have a little more experience or a different perspective. So uh, that's, that's, that's another thing that I always feel like consultation can feel, um, you know, very stiff and uh, that one needs to come and present things perfectly or have all the answers. And, and it, the whole point of it is to say, ah, you know, things aren't, things aren't going so well, or I'm kind of confused on this part and uh, having these, these colleagues who are so excited to help bolster that part of your practice. I wonder how many of us, did that, you know, as, as students, as trainees, totally. right. We go to, to supervision or consultation and we, we, we think we have to say it just the right way. And we have to prove to everybody in that room that we already knew what we needed to do. And we already had it all figured out. And we're already perfect at this mm-hmm. and man, what, you know, how, how much better it is or how much more effective and helpful is it to be able to go in there and feel okay, comfortable saying, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't, I, you know, this, this really client stuck. is, yeah. I'm really stuck or I, I maybe feel, feel like I made a mess of something and they need some help. Um, man, that's so much, so much better. And, and when you realize too, that the consultants on the call also have been there and, and still are there at times, you know, that's really, um, I, I don't know. I, I think that's empowering to recognize that, that that's the point. We're not perfect and and none of us will be. And in fact, the clinicians I've encountered that are like, you know what? I've got it all figured out. I don't need to talk to anybody. Those are the ones I worry about the most. You know? Oh, one, uh, 100%. I mean, I actually have kind of a, a funny story about perfection. When I was first learning PE, I was very lucky in my um, in my clinical training that I got to be an ex an extern at the University of Pennsylvania at the Center for Treatment and Study of Anxiety. So I learned PE while I was still in grad school and got to spend really two days a week in that clinic where nice. you know PE was being truly like fine-tuned and was such a great experience. And we would have group consultations. 
So in our group consultation with everyone, every clinician and Dr. Foa, everybody in the room, and we would watch videotapes. And so when I was learning PE, what I did is I just read that script over probably a hundred times to the point that I pretty much memorized it. And when I did all the rationale, the feedback to everyone, even though it was practically a memorized script of the manual, was like, I guess that was that was okay. And I was like, that's the manual. And they're like, yeah, but it didn't it didn't seem like you. Like it didn't seem like an authentic, exactly an authentic version of you. And when you don't come across as that, even though you might be saying every correct word, it isn't going to come off as a great rationale. Let's talk about how you are still you while having fidelity and saying all the sort of, you know, if you could see me, the air quotes of right words. And I think part of that is is giving people permission to do that too. That perfection doesn't isn't just reading the script. Perfection is how do you impart all the important parts of the rationale or the mechanism of how a treatment works to the the person that's in front of you. And that perfect version of treatment might look different than the patient you have next who's sitting in front of you who might need an explained a different way. It's like PE with personality. We need to add a segment in our slide deck. (laughs) Seriously, you know, personality to PE. I think of that as like another metaphor too, that, that I I think about a lot is that, you know, kind of that perfection versus the imperfections being important. Um, I saw, it was just a documentary the other day, just about the, you know, advancement of AI in, in lots of different things, artificial intelligence and many different things. And we've been able to, with technology for a long time, produce technology that can play music, let's say, perfectly, right? All the exactly right notes at the exact right timings with the exact right volumes. And it still comes across as stilted and cold and hollow until you, you know, when, when you realize that what gives music its meaning, what makes it really meaningful to each of us is actually the imperfections that are in there, the places where, you know, tempo changes a bit, where you, you know, are emphasizing different things, where there's, if you will, feeling, you know, authenticity Mm -hmm. in that performance. Um, And that's a difference between the machine doing it and a person, a human, an artist doing it. And I think there's a a similar kind of application here to any of our evidence-based psychotherapies. You can do them perfect by the book, word for word, say the right things at the right pace and, you know, in the right order. And it's still kind of got that cold, hollow feel to it until you add that expression, that authentic expression to that structure. I don't know if that's useful. Yeah, I I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I think being your authentic, your authentic self um, also allows our patients to be that when they're in the room, totally. right? And they recognize that things don't have to be rigid or um, as formal. You know, PTSD treatment can be hard and people are telling mm-hmm. us hard, difficult things, the worst experience of their life. And the more personable you can be, the best version of yourself you can be with them the more willing they're going to be to share these experiences in a very truthful and um, heartfelt way with you. And I think we can, if we could do all of that, right, be your authentic self, be open to the experience of your patients, 
be open to how they want to share their trauma with you and be faithful to the treatment. I mean, what a winning equation. Absolutely. Man, we've talked about so many things today. Thank you so much for being here. Um, and I hope this oh. isn't the last time we talk. I mean, we there's so much to unpack. But I, I loved it. I, you know, I always love chatting with you. So I'm totally. happy to come back and chat some more. Well, good. So, I mean, we're going to continue to work together in other ways too. And so hopefully we'll yeah, be able to come back and, and talk some more. So and like you said, you, we've, we've thrown out or you've thrown out a lot of great, you know, barriers that you've encountered solutions and things, but I wonder, you know, on the podcast here, we always end with something we call actionable Intel, kind of a couple of, of points of a suggestion tips, you know, things that, that any of our listeners can apply practically to their work um, to, to, you know, improve their, their, um, offering of evidence-based psychotherapies or the way that they are doing them. Um, any thoughts on that? What, what kind of tips for actionable Intel do you have for our listeners? So I would say if we went with some of the shared decision-making stuff that we discussed earlier, I would encourage people, the national center for PTSD has a decision aid that can help you, um, learn a little bit about some treatments for PTSD, but also give you some great talking points when you want to discuss these treatments with patients, as well as some videos that you can use in your session about people's experience of doing these treatments. Mm -hmm. And I think those can be really helpful as you're sort of flexing that muscle of shared decision-making and learning about it a bit more can be really helpful to have that guide. So I would say check that out. And the other thing to think about is um, is to think about what are ways in which you can think about with your patients that maybe there has been some rigidity on any sort of um, manualized treatments. What are ways to flex those treatments in ways that can be helpful with your patients? And we have some trainings related to that at the National Center in our lecture series and in our continuing education. So feel free to take a look at those if you feel like that's something that maybe that flexibility has been a struggle in your clinical practice. That's fantastic. I wanted to mention too, before we wrapped up, we're going to put this in our show notes as well, but uh, you know, getting uh, accessing the uh, NCPTSD consultation line, it's a, there's a phone number. It's 866-948-7880. Is that right? Mm -hmm. or they or they can email ptsdconsult at va.gov. Um, and then many of the resources that Lisa just mentioned um, are available on the National Center for PTSD's website. That is www.ptsd.va.gov, G-O-V. Um, lots and lots of really fantastic resources there to support clinicians, uh, supporting clients, patients as well. Um, you know, just really fantastic. Would recommend anybody that works with clients uh, with PTSD, go take advantage of those resources there. And I'll just put a quick plug to, you know, really the first step is get trained, right? So sure. um, we we, we want to make sure that people know that one of one of CDP's main missions and, and efforts is to provide very low cost, uh, high quality training in uh, prolonged exposure, CPT, when uh, we have a host of other ones as well. But if we're kind of sticking with the with PTSD realm, um, that anybody can access. So you don't have to be in VA or DOD. Um, if you are in VA or DOD, you can come too. Uh, so it's, it's open to anybody. And we, we hope that you'll check out our training, upcoming training page as well. If you just want to get trained, first step is get trained in the EBP and then right. you can kind of follow all the rest of it as well. And we and do we'll put, hope that uh, folks check out. 
Go ahead. I send we'll people the link. to your trainings all the time. <laughs> I'll stop talking. Go okay. ahead. I'm sorry, Lisa. Can you say that again? Sorry. I was I was just going to say I send people to your trainings all the time, inside and outside of VA. And it, they really are such fabulous trainings. And I don't say that because I did one with Kevin. It is because it is not <laughs> the me part of that training. It was the Kevin part of that training. He was really fabulous. And to see all of you all firsthand do these trainings and to be able to be witness to them, really, they are fabulous. So I encourage you all to go to them. Well, thank you for that. We'll put the the link to mm-hmm. the upcoming trainings and and uh, how to register for them on the show notes as well. So you know, again, we welcome everybody to to kind of join the family here, if you will, um, and uh, take advantage of the the network of of uh, creativity and thought that goes into these. So, thank you again, Lisa. Really, really enjoyed having you on. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we look forward to uh, to talking again, Jenna. Any closing thoughts? Just again, it was it was great speaking with you. We love collaborating with you and uh, we hope everyone circles back for our next episode. So thanks for listening. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.